it was very small space maybe like I'm not even going to guess, but it was like a tiny little fraction of the size of this factory. Um, and so we moved here in October and thought that we could get like five years out of this space. And we're already having to think about what's next. Just making ceramics the way we're doing it, just it takes a lot of space. There's a lot of big machines. And um, yeah, <laughs> we're, we're all cozy in here for sure. So that was Connie Matisse. She is the co-founder and chief creative officer of East Fork Pottery. And for those of you who don't know, East Fork is a pretty big deal. Um, they are one of the most well-known brands here in Asheville for their beautiful pottery products. And they are on their way to becoming one of the most well-known American-made uh, ceramics in the country. And welcome to Making It in Asheville. This is a podcast where we sit down with people like Connie uh, to talk about what they're making in Asheville and how they are making it in Asheville. We're your host, Sarah and... Tony. <laughs> yeah, Sarah and Tony. So, uh, interview number one of season two. I am over the moon excited to share this episode with Connie Matisse. You know, for sound quality purposes, we sat in this tiny little closet in this gigantic you know, part office space, part factory uh, that East Fork just opened, what was it, almost less than a year ago now, and that they're already growing out of. Um, and to grow that fast, you have to be doing some things right. And so we tried to figure out what some of those things were. Yeah, we talked a lot about how they got their start, uh, how they've grown from this small little ceramics company into this national brand. And uh, Connie also shares with us a lot of her strategy and tips for marketing and creating compelling content and, and being honest uh, with your customers. There's a lot of really great information here um, that we're really excited to share. Oh, for sure. Like, it, no exaggeration, there are... So we're going to read a part of the website in a moment um, because they they do such an incredible job of storytelling both in their you know Instagram and social profiles, but also on their website. And that's an incredibly hard thing to do, but it's necessary when you are selling a premiumly priced product. And so uh, we dive like really practically into some of those, um, I guess, skills, but also just... Uh, strategies, like the way that they think about communicating with customers is really, really important. And by the end of the episode, I think we get to a really uh, powerful place about how uh, grueling it can be to run a business that is growing at the rate theirs is. So before we dive in, I'm going to read uh, just a couple paragraphs from their website on how they got their start. I think uh, the way they tell this story is just so beautiful and compelling and, and interesting in itself. But it also sets up um, a lot of you know information for some of the questions that we ask in the episode. So we're going to read it for you here. Alex Matisse finished an apprenticeship in the North Carolina Piedmont and set out on his own to make pottery on a gloomy old Madison County tobacco farm in 2009. Meanwhile, 23-year-old Connie Cody, now Connie Matisse, was milking goats eight miles away as the crow flies, deep in an existential crisis. They met at the farmer's market. She was selling cheese, and a few weeks later, she moved in. Tom Waits, come on up to the house, blasting on the record player. She didn't really understand the pottery thing, but she liked Alex and was in one of those just walk through the door if it's open sort of places. 
Alex made a lot of pottery and fired it in a big wood kiln in the little holler, but the workshop felt lonely. In 2013, their friend John Vigeland came to stay for the weekend. They all drank a lot of wine, read a lot of poetry, and sat by the fire. They were 24 and all hopelessly romantic after all. And before the friend headed home, he said, I'd really like to figure out how to work together. So that's what they did. And they sure did. <laughs> uh, but I, I, the thing that stands out to me about that uh, is that there are a lot of origin stories. There are a lot of about us pages that exist on the web, especially for, for brands, consumer brands. That feels so tangible and like visual. You can see it. It reads like like poetry or, or prose. Um, and that's a, I think that's like a superpower for them. Not only do they have incredible products that are gorgeous and you can just see it, but everything comes across as thoughtful, intentional, uh, uh, geeking out about East Fork right now. Yeah. So enough from us. Let's dive into the interview uh, with Connie Matisse. Enjoy. So reading the story online of like your who we are story, mm -hmm. you know, it tells this sort of like romantic story of, you know, you were working on a goat farm and then you met Alex and you were having this existential crisis and uh, then it just all sort of like came together and you guys were like, let's build a business together. Mm -hmm. And it sounds so, you know, simple and, and romantic and whatnot. Tell us a little bit more. What was the existential crisis that you were sure. having and how did this sort of yeah you know, I mean I feel together? like um a lot of uh mm, <laughs> yeah so I you know I grew up in Los Angeles I was living in New York City before I moved to Madison County North Carolina and um I left New York in 2008 during the financial crisis mm -hmm. I was working for a nonprofit um that closed overnight laid everybody off um didn't pay us for like a month and a half of work there was a lawsuit involved it was just blah 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 um so I came to I like kind of was hiding out in the middle of you know nowhere I know that's not a nice phrase to say but it really felt like that I mean I was surrounded by goats and like one dude who lived down the road and working on um a farm out there um and um yeah, it, it was really fun and romantic for a couple months. And then I was like, what the hell? What have I done? Because um, I, I don't know. And then I, I met Alex and Alex was just like so driven. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. And he was 24. And the first day we met, he said something like, you know what I love? I love going to the grocery store to get dog food for my dog because it makes me feel like such a a man or something like, like something like a, <laughs> like an adult he was just so excited about being an adult and like having a career path and he knew he wanted to be a potter for the rest of his life and um I was just like I don't know what I want to do with myself and um so you know I think like a lot of us at 24 25 30 um, 30 yeah <laughs> not yeah I, I feel like I don't still I don't really know what I want to do but at that time I was yeah. like what is what is life? Who am I? Am I a person? Like, what is, I just was a mess, like a yeah. real mess. Um, and then, um, yeah, navigating that like Saturn returns thing by myself, like next to a partner who really seemed like he had it all together. It was, it was a very confusing time. Um, 
Asheville, I had a lot of negative things to say about Asheville. I really didn't like it for the first six years. Um, wow. And you stayed that long. I stayed that long because of Alex, because of love. Uh, um, but yeah, I was really trying. I, um, it was, it was really hard. I, I felt that it was just a very, I was a very judgmental person. I still can like, that's where when I am in my weakest self, I, I tend toward that. But I thought Asheville was doing a lot of self-congratulating and um, patting itself on the back for mediocrity <laughs> and um, just had some growing up to do. Um, it, it, I think it's doing that now. Um, and so it's, it feels better to be here now. Wow. Yeah. So, that <laughs> is so different than I imagine like the romance was also for the mountains and for the city and for the people. So, you know, the I think the word that you used romantic and we're going to continue probably to use it because mm-hmm. it does seem to tell the story appropriately but it, I think there's a huge jump from saying hey we should do something mm-hmm. which probably everyone has said at some point mm-hmm. and a very small percentage of people act on it even smaller turn it into a business that outgrows yeah. a 15,000 square foot foot factory if you can even remember to those first earlier days what, like what things happened mm-hmm. next right so there was already a fo- i'm trying to yeah, think yeah. about the timeline he had already east fork existed so east fork existed we were doing the craft fair circuit um alex and alex had been trained in a very traditional style of apprenticeship um pretty specific to this region specific to the southeast um and we were you know going to um, the american craft council shows and catawba valley and making pots and um, this very vernacular way, firing them in a wood kiln, packing them up every couple months and taking them on the road, having big kiln sales at the house where we would invite collectors to come and purchase pottery straight from um, the farm. Um, and that was how his teachers had done it. Um, there's still several potters in the area um, who continue to make a living and make their work in that way. Um, it's a really special tradition that we have in the Southeast um, that we have a lot of reverence for um but uh, i think when when john joined the business in 2013 um we wanted to start thinking about about it as less of a, a solo pursuit an individual right. pursuit and more um about growing a business that could involve a lot more humans and just um be in more of a conversation with the world um because there is something very lonely and and fragmented about um being a an artist at the end of a dirt road selling their wares um it it kind of requires you to withdraw um from what's going on um with the rest of society um to um and it just wasn't who we were so um when john came they started working um kind of like more of like an atelier they were envisioning mm-hmm. like having a, a whole workshop full of potters who were all making work in the same um vein but still with some individual style that's how it's that's how the idea started um and then um i i have a background in food and beverage so i really wanted to make work for my friends who were restaurant owners um and really we found from that that you needed to make something that was repeatable, that was really functional and firing would work in a wood fired kiln just isn't super conducive to that. Um, so it, it started happening, happening really organically. Like when one of us would have an idea, we would try it out. Um, Alex did a lighting project that him, that got his brain thinking in a new way. We just started throwing things against the wall. And then if we noticed that it stuck, we threw it through some more. Um, and yeah, we ended up with just like a really, um, 
dynamic combination of skills um, that worked really well together. And but only recently did we start doing like the what's the 10 year vision thing. Like we just started doing it. Got it. And so the kiln, so I've watched videos. The kiln to me is like a gigantic uh, brick pizza oven that you can, humans, lots of humans can walk into Mm -hmm. um, and you fill it up. And so that was the primary, uh, I don't know, kiln until something from Europe and then... Uh, that allowed for more repeatability. And yes. When did yes. that so like we, that came in 2016? Also, at the end of 2015, we bought the Blau kiln and started wow. experimenting with um, a still a wheel thrown line of dinnerware. Um, we started firing in the gas kiln, required new glazes, and really opened up the possibility of color. Um, but for the first two and a half years of making the what we call the line the collect Eastport collection. Um, it was all thrown on the wheel. Um, John won January through like 1300 plates or something like that. Like we, the potters who we started off with. So John and Alex, Amanda, Kyle, Max, Jeff, um, they're all still on the team. Um, they all do very different work now. Um, John's the CFO, Max heads up our glaze team. Kyle's our glaze chemist. Um, but at that point they were all throwing the whole line on the wheel. Um, and yeah, and then we were like, well, this would be a lot easier if we were doing this differently. And so it, we got a little hand, we, or we made a jigger machine, which started letting us experiment with molds. Um, and we've just been scaling it wow. like that ever since. Um, and now Alex's whole world is just like looking at weird machines in different countries and like we chatting with people to learn more about them. It's just, a, yeah, not where we thought we were going to be five years ago, but... Wow. Yeah. So I, I'm really curious about the relationship as well, because again, the way it's described on the website is kind of like, you know, Connie met Alex and then Alex, you know, Alex and then met John and then they were like, let's work together. This mm-hmm. is working. Uh, I, I'm wondering if, you know, how much of the project was, hey, we get along really, really well. Let's turn this into a business versus, hey, we have a really great idea and you seem okay at this. Let's do this. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, sort of the relationship is more important almost yeah yeah I think that um John actually just found some letters that he'd written he'd copied letters and um that Alex and John were writing back and forth to each other um before we really launched into this new phase Mm -hmm. um and it's I mean, for a while, it was John and Alex. I remember, like, Alex was reading this book called The Power of Two, and he was really seeing, like, that relationship as, um, you know, being the the primary relationship of the business. And I was going through this existential crisis, and I was like, how do I fit in here? Um, And I was still doing a lot of work for the business, but, you know, it was very much supportive work. Mm -hmm. And it, it wasn't, like, I knew it wasn't something I could do for forever. And John and Alex both were very respectful and acknowledging that, I had potential to help them mm-hmm. um, in a way that was un- being underutilized. Um, so in the letters, it's like, so what's going to happen with Connie? And like, she, we know she's going to be part of this business in some way, but like, we don't know, like, there was just like a lot of questions of like, what is, what is the three of us? What are the three of us going to do together? And is that going to work? Um, and it just, it, it was pretty organic. Like we just, mm-hmm. they, from the beginning we've all been just have had deep deep respect for um for each other and um 
our differences and the skills that we bring to the table and for the most part have really stayed in stayed in our lanes and um trust each other to yeah. to do things right I mean and we both we all of us mess up a lot and um Alex has his ways that he tends to mess up and I have mine and like we have to catch that and um yeah, but the relationship has evolved um to a, a place where like now we're like the executive team um and we don't hang out as much as maybe we did when I didn't have children and mm-hmm. we weren't working 80 hours but like there's still this like base level of love and respect that and, and it's like a, a shared value set that right. makes the running the business part with each other a lot easier um running the business in general is really freaking hard right now but um the three of us still come together and and feel really good about our relationship at the end of the day it sounds like a weird triangle situation no 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 yeah, it's, it's interesting I mean, we work together and we are you know we are together we were going to get married soon and it was really hard at first to kind of understand like how how is this relationship going to be balanced out Mm -hmm. you know and sometimes people say don't go into business with your you know friends and loved ones and I I just think that's so fascinating that that kind of is the foundation for what a lot of this is absolutely I don't advise everyone to do it I think you need to think really long and hard about if it's a if your relationship could survive something like that because um you have to be able to um to be really vulnerable and to make really big mistakes and to like get feedback when um yeah you have to be be willing to to hear when you've hurt someone and screwed up and uh, that can be really hard when it's coming from yeah. your business partner who's also your husband or your friend. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm, what I'm hearing is that there have been at least, call it three stages of East Fork, probably more. How, what I'm hoping to do is have you say, yeah, like we're, we've experienced multiple phases of this thing and focused on slightly different things in each phase. Mm-hmm. Is that true, first of all? And if if it is like what what evolutions right because it's one thing to build a business that has people drive out to, i wanted to say it was in marshall mm-hmm. right to drive out to marshall to pick up um pots and and plates and dinnerware uh it's another to have like lines sell out almost instantly when you publish them on mm-hmm. the internet mm-hmm. and i'm wondering like what's different and what's the same mm-hmm about those businesses sure yeah so from the beginning there's always been um deep relationship building that happens um so with our earliest collectors um we went to their homes for dinner um we greeted people with big meals every time they came out for a kiln sale um it wasn't ever like a platter of cookies it was like a six course barbecue feast and like kegs of beer so like throwing parties and building real human relationships has been something that's really been been central to east work since the start um and that's been a really fun thing to figure out how to scale um I would say that our to this point our we we only have two people on our customer care team. We're currently hiring another person, but the two women on that team managed to foster real deep relationships with our customers over email and um, that turned into letter writing and gift sending and um the fact that we're able to do that with as many customers as we have um it, it maybe is I'm sure people would point holes up or 
uh, points to how that is not best for the bottom line, but we ultimately think that like true hospitality is like always going to win out. Um, so that's definitely a carryover. Um, I would say that like there's a big change, obviously, when we started putting stuff online. Like we were at one time an only in-person business because we couldn't take pictures of every item that we sold because mm. it was all different. Um, and so when we started dabbling and putting things on this rinky-dink Squarespace website, um, it started opening up the world to content making. And um, I, that was really exciting for me because I have a writing background. I think that I have a decent eye for things that look good. Um, I So I was like, Pretty wow, great. this is a whole new way of being able to do some visual storytelling and um, and in a yeah to open up the, uh, a, a big new audience to um, seeing a, a traditional craft product in a, a new light um, I, I mean it's like such a big it's such a big story I'm like how do I tell all of it? like is there's that I mean Instagram obviously um, Alex used to run our Instagram it was never like a this is a business Instagram it was always it started as a personal Instagram right. um, that was just like random pictures of us with our cat and stuff and um, so I think that's a big differentiator and that like a lot of um, companies who were compared to they had a launch strategy that they launched with mm -hmm. content they launched with a brand identity they launched with a marketing plan and ours has been so just like we did this and then we did this and we did this um so people when people ask me for like how do I get an authentic voice on Instagram it's like you cannot I'm not going to teach you a class on that if you don't know how to do that you're never going to learn um there I didn't it wasn't a strat now there's a strategy because I have to teach people how to do it but it was built from just me taking weird stories of Alex and John doing 14 year old boy jokes in the factory or in the <laughs> workshop and and we've scaled, we figured out how to scale that. Um, but, so I don't know, I guess that's the, that's the crossover is that like we haven't, it's always been us sharing behind the scenes insight into what's happening in our lives and in our business. And um, the, I, I think we do really take that radical transparency idea to yeah. a whole new level. Um, people really connect with people on our team. Um, they feel like they know us really well because we share so much um, and you don't see a lot of businesses our size doing that totally i think i think of how you exist in two spaces in my mind one is with some of the best like photos and website storytelling of anything full stop and then you had an instagram story the other day where you, it was a selfie and like someone walked in you're like i'm mortified <laughs> and I, I love that both of those things can exist in one brand yeah i mean they're like there are humans taking those pictures you know i mean it's so funny that you just like to i don't i just don't know how, any other way to do it like right. how do people i just can't take myself that seriously either um uh, but yeah thank you for saying that I, I do think that our like our creative team i think is the best in the business like there's no one taking pictures of lifestyle of like of of plates as well as our little team in Asheville, north carolina and it's just like three of us you know it's um it's awesome it is well, um, speaking of personal connections, I, I see Eastwork as well as kind of like representing this group of potters and, you know, uh, ceramic artists and kind of like, like not just the ones that you work with, but as a whole mm -hmm. um, and standing up for, for this group of people. Um, how have you been able to maintain that relationship as you've grown? Sure. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, that's a tricky one. I mean, I, certainly when we started scaling and using machines, we had our share of dissenters who were like, you're selling out. And like, we hear that all the time. I think that's where mm. I come back to this Asheville's complex of like, um, like just this feeding of the starv- starving artist mentality that you're not mm. a real artist unless you're like, you can't afford. Yeah, I, I, I like the band when they couldn't eat anything exactly. but like ramen or mcdonald's yeah yeah, well, yeah. and you like get really angry at people's success and it's like well like people didn't have health insurance yeah. and they like couldn't afford to like get to work right. so and so i we don't really care like when people are like uh oh, it's for their corporate sales i'm like well no but i it yeah. but we get that and yeah. also um, we we're so deeply I mean, Alex and John were trained in this very traditional way. Like they know their craft inside and out in a way that a lot of potters don't. Um, a lot of people who like go to grad school, you know, you have to in grad school, you have to learn all these other things that you don't end up using after you leave. And um, and some people take that into like really beautiful studio art practices. Um, but other people, it, it, I don't know, grad school can like, it can set you up for a very specific type of success or it can... Or you can leave it and be like, I don't know. Yeah, I need to I teach mean. at a grad school. Yeah, that's exactly. the only thing I can do right now is yeah. teach at grad school, which there's a need for. But like, it's not what everyone wants to do. Like, right. they, um, anyway, so I think that like having that foundation of like of really, really knowing the craft, like then we were able to teach people um, who came to Eastwork as apprentices and our, our early hires. We taught them that craft in a very traditional way, um, and there was absolutely some um, some tension when we for that original team because um, they came to learn how to make wood-fired pottery. And yeah. then when we're like, just kidding, we're going <laughs> to scale a manufacturing business, um, they were all like, um, that's not what we signed up for. Um, but they're all still here, and they're all in leadership roles, um, and they've all just contributed to that growth. Um, but it wasn't that we like had to pull someone from some other place to help us do that. Like they, There's been so much growth from people who've started here um, – all together and so we've been able to kind of all get on the same wavelength about mm. where we're gonna go and where we're coming from anyway all that to say that um now i feel like we have this amazing position to or um, opportunity to be champions for small craft businesses um and to say like to, to shed some light on the average consumer of um of what is good craft versus what is bad craft there's a lot mm. of bad craft out there just gonna say it like not every person who like likes doing pottery should quit their job and be a potter like you have to decide if that's if you want to overlap your passion with your business mm-hmm. um we see a lot of people who are like i love doing this thing i'm going to monetize it it's like no don't monetize something that you love just because you love it like that'll ruin the love yeah. of it for you like do it if you want to be a business owner um and but we can for the for the crafts people out there who want to make it their life's work mm-hmm. um we feel like we have the opportunity to provide tools and training and learning um, for that community and also to provide some eyeballs um, because so much of of, um, of making craft is like getting it out in the world to be used and appreciated. Um, yeah, we have your little like recommended list that was uh, when we saw it in the in the retail store, I remember being like, oh, my god because you don't have to like you don't i I think it's very on brand that you do Mm. but you don't have to like distribute your own awareness and eyeballs to anyone else 
And the fact that you choose to, I thought, was so powerful. And it's been like a huge part of our season one mm. kind of storytelling. And so it's been great to have the opportunity to like hear more about your story and what what's going on here. Um, absolutely love it. And, and love that you said that you don't need to monetize your passion or your art. Like Liz Gilbert is a huge mm -hmm. like mentor hero of mm -hmm. ours through mm -hmm. her books and her like speaking. But I, I think we completely agree. There's a huge difference between like loving to do something as a hobby mm -hmm. and as like a, it fulfills me and then trying to make a business out of it. And then it's a wholly other thing to say that I don't just want to have a business. I want to like, make it the best possible version of a business. And one of the things I've seen in interviews and videos uh, of you and your executive team here is like, it seems like you're starting to talk about your art and your craft as much more than just the plates and pots and cups and be the craft now is building a business. Mm -hmm. um, what have been some growing pains or mm -hmm. learning experiences uh you know, uh, I guess it's trial by fire in some ways <laughs> yeah. uh, to try and make a loose, you know, pottery joke. But, <laughs> <laughs> but so but, many growing pains. Uh, uh, I mean, the the one big one is that like to time we're making what we sell. And so to time the demand and the supply um, in, a, in a way that is in concert is really hard. And so there were... Um, there was a long time where our demand was drastically outpacing our supply and people are like, that's a great problem to have. It's really not. It's a really expensive problem to have. Um, and it makes customers really mad and you have to overstaff in order to like event to catch up. Yeah. And so you're paying a lot of money to like get to a place that you're not at yet. So that's, that's been a huge one. And, and now we're going to, and now we're thinking about what it looks like when the pendulum swings the other way, when we're making a lot more than we can sell and we don't have the marketing budget to, um, to bring, to, to get them in, in harmony again. So that's, yeah. that's one. Um, I mean, the, the big one is that like, there's a real reason that people don't manufacture dinnerware in the United States. Um, it's really expensive to do it. Um, especially to do it in any semblance of an ethical way. Um, our starting rate at East Fork is $15 an hour um, for entry level, unskilled, un, um, you know, untrained production hires. Yeah. Um, and to those of you not in Asheville, that is real money because when yeah. we were moving down and looking for like, hey, what could be just anything yeah. to keep cash coming in while we figure out our moves? You know, places that I thought I wanted to work were like eight ninety an yeah. hour or something. Yeah. I was like, Whoa. I mean, the minimum wage I think is still seven twenty five. Yeah, um, yeah, that's you can't make a living off seven twenty five, but a lot of people are still making a lot less I than know. that. I know. Um, but yeah, there's a reason why people do it overseas, and yeah. um, you know, our, our our dinner plate costs forty two dollars. We are not profitable. Um, building a manufacturing business is also extremely expensive and investing in machinery and doing things like paying health insurance and um, all of the added value things that, that make a culture, make a company culture um, worth building are expensive and they're really hard. And um, it's, it's really important for 
for our leadership team here to build a culture where everybody feels really heard and understood and like they're actually contributing in a very non-tokenizing way. Um, and there's a reason why businesses don't do that because it's really hard because like, every decision that we make ends up being a very prolonged group decision um, where in a lot of other cases, executive teams would just be like, this is the choice because it's the most efficient, it's the cheapest, and it's the one that we need to make to mm -hmm. move the process along. Um, so we're growing at 300% right now at Eastwork, but we are still, um, I think that we've accomplished um, more in the last year um, as far as like building a framework for a business that we want to grow um, than a lot of businesses do in a decade, um, which feels great, but it's also really freaking stressful. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think like, a, I don't know, I, from my personal perspective, like I still struggle with wanting to be protective of my team and like maybe taking on way more work so that I don't burden other people. And that looks like 80 hour work weeks and me waking up at 4am and you know, I don't know how long I can do that for. <laughs> Doesn't seem so sustainable no. unless you're asleep by six. I don't know. I, I mean, if I can get to sleep by 9.30, um, that is just my dream. Yeah. Um, but Wow. Yeah. A lot of pain points. And then also it just one of the big things that we think about is Asheville is just an incredibly segregated city. Um, it is a lot of people tend to say that it is um, homogenous, which isn't true. There are lots of people of color in town, but there it's been so, um, so segregated that the, the class issue that exists in Asheville is really heightened. And so you see very, very little money in, um, in communities of color um, and a lot of gentrification, obviously that we're all part of. And for anyone's listening to this podcast, it's the reality of it. And so once we kind of deal with the reality of that, we, you, we have to take responsibility in addressing it. Um, and so that's something that we think about a lot, like equitable hiring practices. Um, it's so easy to walk around in Asheville and like never see someone who's not white if you don't go yeah. out of your way to do it. Um, and so that, uh, that perpetuates the hiring pool perpetuates that because you're hiring people who get a recommendation who's a friend of a friend um and if you don't want to continue doing that you have to like actively cut it out mm -hmm. yeah. and find a new solution and so that's all sorts of um fun fun growing pains there and making mistakes and um yeah love i mean can't imagine that you would ever think that that would be a thing that you'd have to learn to solve for in 2014 or 15 when you're on a farm no. i imagine right like <laughs> yeah. the things that you can't imagine would come up yeah 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 um you were talking about sort of the the pricing of the plates and and how it's so expensive to make this quality of pottery here in America. And I think a lot of people walk into Eastwork and they're like, wow, this is so beautiful. And then they pick up a plate and they're like, okay. And mm -hmm. they just like put it back down because they're so price shocked at how much it costs. Um, I was wondering if you could just break down what goes into each piece that you make. I, I've seen sort of this the post on post. Instagram mm -hmm. that's like, you know, the percentage is broken down of it. And, mm -hmm. and could you just shed a little bit of light on yeah that. yeah um 
Well, yeah, actually, um, John and our graphic designer, uh, Nicole, and I were just talking about um, creating a quarterly update for both internal and external mm-hmm. use that shows how those costs change every quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, so look out for that coming soon. Cool. Um, but, um, I mean, payroll is huge. Like, we, we employ 60 people at East Fork, and um, the a good bit of that goes to paying um, fair wages and all the benefits mm-hmm. that come along with that um building costs rent um energy uh clay clay you know <laughs> packing <laughs> it's anytime we sell 26 percent of what we sell on the internet goes to fulfilling the order wow. um so if you're ordering something in new york um and you yeah you spend 42 dollars on a plate and we charge you $9 in shipping. Um, that doesn't even come close to covering our fulfillment costs. Um, you know, it's not like Glossier shipping like a mascara for mm-hmm. free. People are like, why isn't your shipping free? I'm like, we are paying you so much money to ship you this thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, 26% of all of our e-com revenue is lost to fulfilling the order. Wow. Um, it's, yeah, it's scary. Um yeah, and then all of this, I mean, marketing costs, obviously. I mean, we don't have, um, compared to other companies, our size and scale, um, our marketing budget is a little drop in the bucket. We do a lot with the budget that we have, but digi- we do, you know, we run digital ads. Um, we get up to New York to do desk sides as much as we can. Um, being in Asheville, you have to, like, make a really loud stink about being here because it's really easy to you know it people who are based in new york and la get the press coverage more because they're friends with everybody so i'm always like we're here here we are you should pay attention to what we're doing and um that costs money sometimes um yeah it costs a lot of money to run a business legal fees (laughs) (laughs) uh like i mean we have not legal trouble fees but like anytime you want to make a small adjustment to your operating agreement um you're paying a lawyer you know six thousand dollars to change one line in your operating agreement and then having to like get everybody to sign on. And it's just like stuff that I just didn't expect to be shelling out cash for professional development. Um, yeah. Resiliency trainings for our leadership staff, all sorts of things like that. Awesome. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that, well, you might've had other blog posts, but I think that right when we moved to town, that was the most recent blog post, maybe Mm -hmm. through almost four months ago now, Mm -hmm. but Uh, loved that as a concept and as a visualization. And I think more than, more than like the explicit here are costs, I think that you do a great job of, because it's one thing to say, this thing is an expense for you. Mm-hmm. And it's another thing to say, you're making an investment, mm-hmm. right? And in sales, that's like a huge thing just generally, mm-hmm. right? The person who's giving you resiliency training could either position themselves as a cost or a um, future asset for the business. And I think you do an incredible job of like talking about everything that you do in such a way that people want to, if they can't just buy everything right away, like want to save Mm -hmm. to one day be a part of that. And I'm wondering, I know that you said that like, I can't teach it, but what things have you learned or what things stand out about marketing in a way where it's not where everyone who reads it goes, wow, that's really good. Mm. And it's, it doesn't feel like buy my thing, buy my thing, buy mm-hmm. my thing, which is my interpretation of how a lot of people start mm-hmm. when they start trying to do marketing or try to start sending emails. They're like, okay, so I got to sell stuff. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think it's honesty and accountability. I think it's like patting yourself on the back when you've done a good job and and um, showing that off, but also like saying, hey, we did a good job last week, but this week we really didn't. And here's why. And here's what we, we're learning from it. Um, so taking credit for the, the stuff you're doing well and um, being the first person to point out stuff that you're doing wrong so that other people aren't pointing it out for you. Um, that's both just a good PR move and I think just like a good way to be a human. Um I'm like learning that in my relationship with my husband. Like, don't wait until Alex tells me what I already know um, I'm doing. Like, <laughs> take credit for it before, you know, um, say like, I'm doing this thing and it sucks. And so um, I, I was, we're, we sent out a newsletter maybe in five minutes um, about um, putting some pollen items on sale. Um, and um, someone on our team, um, Mackenzie, um, Sorry, Mackenzie, calling you out. Um, Mackenzie's awesome, but she was writing about um, putting something on sale and um, um, using like like regular, very well written, but like sales language of like um, putting this on sale as like a, a gift to the customer. Um, and I changed the copy so that it read, "We're putting this on sale because our RAM press team was wildly more um, efficient." in July than we thought they were going to be. And we have so many pollen bowls and we need to sell them. So we're going to put them on sale. Um, and so I don't think, I think that like trusting your customer that they can handle truth and like treating them like a human you might see in the street and, um, having an honest conversation with them goes a really long way. And it is something that we can all, all do better. Um, yeah. That is so funny. I have a moment in my mind that I remember from when we lived in New York, Sarah was working on a campaign for her old employer. And the language was, these things are on sale because we love you. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, Sarah, that's bullshit. Like, you gotta, you gotta (laughs) try and get that changed. Like, I would go, that is a lot you're lying you're to lying. me yeah those yeah. things are on sale because you have to meet three goals <laughs> yeah. and you have two days to do it so you better yeah. pull a freaking lever <laughs> like yeah yeah and i think it's like if you tell your customers that they'll be like cool good for you and good for me like yeah. i get to have we win we all win and with you this. get to hit your goals and like yeah so funny because that's like you wow funny I, I think it's that. what we all want in like yeah. all of our relationships and like we should expect that from from brands and if like we're gonna all be part of this like capitalist monster then like we can all be reciprocal and be like if you're gonna expect me to give you your money i'm gonna expect this honesty from you yeah we were just at a dinner party last night talking about the car buying process and how not honest and how not reciprocal and how like veiled in confusion the whole (laughs) process can be and how no one would opt in for that if they had a choice of something else yeah yeah and it, it seems like other choices are, are showing up. I'm wondering, this is my question. I don't know what was next, but um, in your evolution of as a business, like what specific, ta- I mean, tactics or mm-hmm. tools have proven to be powerful, right? So mm-hmm. a website that was on Squarespace, at least to start, mm-hmm. um, or Shopify, I'm sorry. No, maybe. it's Shopify, Shopify but it was right? Squarespace. Mm-hmm. Um, so like what tools, what techniques, what actual tactics have mm-hmm. proven to be stuff that you constantly go back to? I mean, right now, social media, Instagram specifically, still brings the vast majority of traffic to our website. So um, there's no denying that um, having an engaged 
um, social media following is extremely effective. That said, Instagram can disappear overnight and companies who are solely relying on Instagram followers are going to be in a really tough position. Um, so getting all of those Instagram followers to then become newsletter subscribers is super important. So right. um, we'd been kind of, you know, um, n- yeah, kind of under nurturing our um, our newsletter acquisition for a while um, and then did like a big giveaway push to convert Instagram followers to newsletter subscribers. Um, and it worked. Um, we, I think, quadrupled our newsletter in a year and a half. Wow. Um, and but then you got to follow it up like if you're going to be sending out a weekly newsletter the content better be really good um so i yeah i'm subscribed to all sorts of newsletters that i immediately unsubscribe from that i got on because of a giveaway because the content is telling me nothing um so i guess always like thinking about how do i acquire customers how do i keep them engaged how do i nurture them um rather than i mean it's different for everybody though because a lot of people who have um products that are in a different price point their goal is like how quickly can i turn this these eyeballs into a conversion um can i get them to buy immediately um our items our pots require a lot more nurturing um because they're our higher price point they have a story that needs to be told and i mean some people go and they buy twelve hundred dollar dinner set without much thought of it most people have to be convinced that it's worth their money and time um so yeah we're thinking about the funnel of from when someone first lays eyes on a pot on east fork on the internet or in person um how do we shepherd them from um, eyeballs to re-engaging to nurturing to purchasing to following up and re-engaging and then starting that cycle over and over again so I think being really intentional about how, like really knowing how long it takes your customers typically to go from first impression to purchase mm. um, is a really good tool for businesses um, really thinking about your customers behavior um, but knowing that it's going to that funnel is going to be different based on what product you're selling um so starting there yeah yeah i think everything you said i i you know snaps and praise hands i concur yeah (laughs) but it's not necessarily easy to start to like especially in a small business to start to quantify um some of the metrics like outside of revenue and outside of total list subscribers there is, you know, darkness in most marketing activities. Oh my gosh! Um, yeah. And so, trying to shine a light um, has that been? That's your team that would be owning and thinking about a lot of that. Yeah. So we um, we just um, ended a contract with a PR firm in New York, um, and we were doing like a traditional PR effort for about a year. Um, we're bringing that in house now. Um, definitely tracking organic press, especially print press is really, really, really hard. I mean, I don't know how marketers used to do it before we're, we're, yes, there's a black hole, but it's also crazy how much we know about people's purchasing, um, patterns. Um, it's so wild, but, um, yeah, so our team is, is thinking about, um, trying to do that equation of like, how much effort is it going to take to get this article? What's the payoff going to be? How do we, um, so there is that it's it's really easy to track people who follow you on Instagram and then come to your website. Luckily, that it's pretty easy. Um, so there's there's some of some amount of digitizing that, but um, it ends up being pretty manual. And what I was saying about the customer care team, like um, our team is so much more hands on than a lot of um, digitally native brands are. Um, we just 
even though we are acquiring new customers, we do our best to get to know the, and we have, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of customers, but, um, it is wild how many of them, um, Savannah and Marissa have had a personal interaction with. Um, so whether that's like following up with an email afterwards saying, how did you like your pot or engaging on social? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think you, it becomes less of a black hole when you just instigate the outreach and, and you notice if someone purchases, you then reach out to get their feedback to see how they like it so that you're not guessing you're just asking. Um, Sounds (laughs) Sounds so simple, it might Sounds work. Sounds so simple. <laughs> <laughs> it just might work. <laughs> Human it. relationships. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, love, I that. love that. I think that's that's super important and something that we ourselves are learning a lot about um, moving here and getting to know uh, local Ashleyans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Tony and I are getting married mm-hmm. in uh, less than a month, which Whoa, is scary. Soon. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Where is it? <laughs> Downtown right. Asheville. Oh, fun. Yeah. yeah. But we don't have a registry. We we have sort of like a house fund and a honeymoon fund and mm-hmm. all this stuff. But if we did have a registry mm-hmm. and you were kind of guiding us along as as your customers, what kinds of things would you recommend as sort of like those those first purchases yeah. to build your set? So we have two types of registries at East Fork. We have what we call um, the traditional registry or and then we have um, a virtual cupboard. Um, and all of our team highly recommends going the virtual cupboard <laughs> Um, route because it allows you to put off the decision making process until after your wedding. Um, I made the mistake of getting a Zola registry when Alex and I were getting married and I just like haphazardly threw stuff on there um, because I mean like everyone like works and I didn't have like hours in the day to Pinterest things and like curate my perfect registry so I just was like putting stuff on that silly app and then I ended up getting a bunch of shit that like I just didn't need. Um, and people only, of course, bought the stuff that I was like least excited about. Um, yeah. And had I just You're like, waited, oh, this is practical. Yeah. <laughs> or just like, I don't need this like device that makes like one specialty type of pasta that I've never used. Yeah. Um, Sarah will take it. You can have it. I've never opened the box. It's really sad. Um, anyway, I do. We always recommend that couples wait until after the event to do all that, especially since people are often moving into new homes mm-hmm. um, together. And so like, it's really nice to just be in your space together and make those decisions together after the wedding chaos has died down. Um, anyway, so that way just it lets your guests contribute to a bank essentially Mm -hmm. and then you get to use it however you want and you can use it on seasonal colors um but we certainly recommend starting with like a three or five piece dinner set for six to eight people um people are always like well we don't have guests over but the wedding you know your wedding is like one of the few events where you have the ability to just be like buy us stuff um so make it so that you're able to have eight people over for dinner and have matching plates. Um, so a plate and an everyday bowl and a mug is like, if you're only going to get three pieces, do those ones. Um, always registering for serving wear. Um, I mean, but like, just think we, we really focus on the kitchen and the table. So, you know, thinking about like, what is everything you need to set a beautiful table that you're going to not be sick of in two years, um, stick with the basics and you can always add the fun stuff later. Yeah. And so, so how do you tell people to like, because I think a lot of people look at this beautiful pottery and they're like, oh, it's like fine china. Like, you know, think about my mom's china that she yeah. used like once a year yeah. at Thanksgiving and then it would just sit in the cabinet. You know, how how do you explain to people, no, this is 
more than every that. day. Yeah, it's well, it's 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 not just it's purely functional. Like that's our intention is for it to be functional and beautiful. But we, you know, six restaurants in town in Asheville use our plates and they run them mm-hmm. through their commercial dishwashers every single night. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, you know, they don't hotel porcelain. Nothing is going to ever hold up as well as hotel porcelain does. But it's also like pretty ugly. So it it holds up almost as well as hotel porcelain does in commercial dishwashers. Um, so the home cook has n- no worries for putting it in the microwave, putting the dishwasher, yeah, Got using it, it for yeah. your everyday wear, but you can still set a table and feel like it's really special. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I think that that, um, there was something that you have written. I think it's on the website or mm-hmm. maybe it's on every single product page, but, um, <laughs> I remember I was in, uh, menswear sales for a while i was like very into fashion and i saw this guy had these great boots on that i you know instantly if you know about boots you're like oh my god those are so cool you're like i want to save up and have them but i i I was afraid that i would never wear them Mm -hmm. is what i said this guy he's like what Mm -hmm. man like when you when you buy something that means something to you you gotta like wear it until Mm. the wheels fall off you can get these things resold boots you get resold but like the whole idea is that you should wear it out yeah use it all the time and i've tried to live in such a way where it's like when possible buy the better thing and wear it out Mm -hmm. if you can Mm -hmm. totally yeah and i I love that that's built into even the name every day yeah um to remind us this is not supposed to sit in a shelf or in a cabinet and I think it speaks a lot to our marketing too is like something that we uh, kind of story we tell ourselves a lot is that uh, you see a lot of lifestyle brands only depicting like really sweet, special celebratory moments where like you're using your dinnerware like in good health and with friends and having a dinner party when the weather's perfect. But like stuff you buy for your home, like you're going to use it in some like you're going to be having a fight with your husband <laughs> and like be screaming at each other. And there's going to be like tears involved and they're, you're going to have the plate that you bought with this picture of like a perfect happy California Mediterranean meal in mind. And like we, the, I think it's, it's just the reality of life that like we, we want to make objects that people feel are going to be associated with and loved for the fact that they kind of bear witness to like to life as it is and not life as you think it should be. That's <laughs> <laughs> a beautiful, that's so beautiful. <laughs> Put that yeah. on the Seriously, <laughs> stop you know, making just things that bear witness to life as it is. Come on, just a little pre-wedding, you know, wow. thought. Yeah. Good luck, guys. Love that. <laughs> it's gonna be happy and it's gonna be sad. Turns out, <laughs> can't wait, cannot wait. So, Sarah, where are we in the like the the document that we make to kind of track along? I, I think we're kind of in the hard pivot to hard, pivoting. Hey, to... let's go outside the office. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and so talk that... a little bit about what you like to do cool. when and, you're outside and so yeah. it's exciting because you told us that for the first six years you were not so hot <laughs> on Asheville <laughs> so I'd love I mean you know we're we're new in this game a of making a podcast talking to people from town but like we are very much aware of the fact that we're in something of a honeymoon phase mm-hmm. um we've even been made aware by some people who read our blog posts and have participated in things and to let us know that like we are most certainly like not seeing the warts yet but it's not from lack of trying i think mm. it's a little bit of our like a just a choice in some ways mm. to be childlike and look for the beauty and mm-hmm. excitement and all the stuff and that's how at least 
we're wired still. Mm -hmm. But I'd love to know, like, this evolution of your experience with Asheville. Like, what, where are you now? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'll go from there. Yeah. Well, I I think it's not fair to Asheville to, like, you know, a lot of me hating Asheville was also me being in an existential crisis and, like, hating the world and, Mm. like, thinking that the world had a lot to work on, which, of course, like, the world is never not going to have a lot to work on. Um, So... Yeah, I the, and I it's I think it's probably also different than a lot of people who maybe have a similar value set that I do that people would say the opposite is true that Asheville used to be this place of wonder and delight and creativity and now it's like a soulless capitalistic um, monstrosity with um, hotel groups and beard, um, you know megalodons coming in um, and taking all the good things away from Asheville. Um, so it's I think it's both and um, I think that. Um, what I like about Asheville now is that it is it's growing very rapidly, and despite that growth, there are a big community of people who are um, who have a who are being like hyper aware of what that growth looks like and um, building um, out systems and organization to change it in a in a way that is ethical and like that it's a amazing opportunity that Asheville has right now to be a city that is becoming and the people, the players in that, um, have the ability to make it become something really great. Um, it's making all sorts of mistakes along the way, absolutely, but it's starting to engage in those harder conversations. And, um, and there's a little bit more of like a waking up to the fact that like, um, you can't continue living in like a little mountain vacuum thinking that, (sighs) you can just like hang some Nepalese prayer flags and vote for Democrats and like think that you're doing God's work, you know, like there's more to being a, a good person than that. Um, and Asheville's starting to wake up to that, I think. So that's, that's that. I also think that like, yeah, there's great restaurants popping up in Asheville and it's um, the, the caliber of like the, the quality is definitely getting raised. Um, and that also means like people are getting pushed out of the city and like, we have to deal with that fact. Um, but I, I just, um, the, there are people who are, are really actively trying to, to navigate this growth in a way that is in conversation with how to do it ethically. Um, but mostly it's just like, I had two kids and I like grew out of my partying phase a little bit and, um, realized that like every place you go is going to have its share of problems and it's just what you do about it that matters. And yeah, you can, you can live a good life really in any city. So I'm starting to wake up to the fact that it's really freaking beautiful here and the, yeah, that's sinking in more. Awesome. How have the little ones like what is when when you think of how they think of Asheville, like what's it like being in your best guess a little kid like going on hikes or mm-hmm. having a yard that's mm-hmm. beautiful um mm-hmm. uh, is there anything that you think that your kids have here that makes it special that might have brought you back around hmm i mean it's it's i thinking about living in New York and raising children i mean uh i <laughs> incredible um respect for all of the folks in new york nannies moms parents who are taking kids up and down subway um steps are like licking the subway poles yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh yes um yeah that's that 
didn't I'm, I'm glad I'm not doing that it, it's really easy to be able to like walk to the public pool and mm-hmm. um, walk to the grocery store and walk to the coffee shop um, yeah I'm really lucky to have that experience of Asheville and my kids are really lucky um, they they um, but at the same time like we go visit their grandma in Los Angeles and they love that too and yeah. so I think that it, there is a um, um, yeah, I think if you're going to raise your kid in Asheville, it's important to sort of make sure they know that it's not the only version of the world. And because um, I feel like we do have that like mountain mentality where like you can really feel like you're in a bubble here. And I try to, um, you know, raise, especially with my four year old, um, uh, acknowledge the fact that like not everyone's life looks like ours um, and that we should be super grateful for the life that we have here. Um yeah, I mean, fireflies, <laughs> like, yeah. those blew my mind. Um, my kid, like, catches fireflies and puts them in a mason jar. And, um, yeah, I never thought that that would be an experience my child had growing up in L.A. Um, That's so cool. I, yeah. I think I watched a video. I want to say it was, like, Capital at Play. Mm-hmm. And, I, I mean, we saw it when we walked in. You have this incredible kitchen. And one of the things that shows up in the way that you write about the brand is the idea of, like, around a table and mm-hmm. shared spaces and community and i'm wondering how does community what it, when i say mm-hmm. community in Asheville, what do you think of is it dinner parties mm-hmm. with friends is it backyards is it restaurants mm-hmm. like what does community mean in Asheville for you yeah um i mean i saw real community um every time i've had a friend who's been in a, a hard place um i've watched community rally around them um so instantly um I've had friends who've lost partners and friends who've like gone through unexpected cancer treatment and, um, and then there's friends who've had babies and like the, the meal train, um, excitement around like making sure everybody's fed and taken care of in Asheville. It's real. Um, so that feels really special. There's an incredible, um, desire to collaborate. Um, yeah, as I was saying, like you'll probably meet everybody else in, in radio and coming back to that, at like our East Fork recommends list. It's, um, it feels good to help your friends out. And if someone has an organization and they need help raising money, um, you know, our team is going to like everyone who works at East Fork is like, yeah, let's do it. Let's rally behind these people. Let's, let's like shed some light for them. And, um, so there's absolutely that mentality of wanting to help each other out. Um, that feels really good. Um, yeah, potlucks. I had never. My, my mom was very anti-potluck growing up because she, you know, was very critical of other people's cooking. Um, <laughs> I grew up the same way. Where I was like, no, if people are coming to my house. I'm gonna just cook all the food because their food's gonna suck. But I in Asheville, <laughs> I have potlucks all the time because <laughs> I have friends who are good cooks. But also because like I've given up on like trying to control my environment so much and um, made space for just things to naturally unfold how they're gonna unfold. And I've definitely um, decreased my, I'd like to say that like the secret to life is lessening your expectations for every situation and Mm -hmm. being pleasantly surprised by Mm -hmm. something. Um, So I feel like Asheville really does let you do that where you can just like really come as you are and not be like, I'm never self-conscious about like whether Mm -hmm. my outfit at a dinner party is the right outfit to be wearing, you know, and that feels really good. You can get to the meat of things much faster. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that definitely like rings true for us as we kind of move down here. The the community sense of community has been so strong, mm-hmm. so strong. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It still has that small town feel. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. 
So speaking of which, I mean, what are some of your favorite places in town? Restaurants, coffee, places, yeah. bars? We, we have a list <laughs> that we could read. Oh, <laughs> uh, my gosh. Well, um, our friend Brian Canapelli, who owns Cucina 24, is opening a new bar. Yes. Yes. I was like, what is this so, post? <laughs> so, so last night we're, we're driving home from, I think it was the dinner party that we referenced earlier. And Sarah's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. <laughs> is everything okay? Like, it's dark. I'm, I'm like, what's happening? And she goes, coming soon, coming real soon. Like, that's what the, <laughs> that's what the Instagram post yeah, said. I think okay, soft so. opening this weekend. So, yeah, so as former Italy dwellers, I think you guys are going to be really excited. It's going to be just like a, a watering hole for, a, for like really good Italian table wine. They'll have like five wines on top and little snacks. But also, Brian says little snacks, but it's, yeah. he has like full blown like wood yeah. fire pizzas and stuff yeah. coming out. Um, all standing. So, like, a pop in, pop out, or like if you're, you mm-hmm. know, going to have a snack before you go into a movie or something. Um, um, so I'm really excited about that. Um, definitely always get to um, Bull and Beggars, our usual date night spot. Mm-hmm. Um, that burger is irresistible, but so is everything on the menu. Um, I Wild Ginger on Hendersonville Road. That Vietnamese restaurant is so good. Um, they have the best. I mean, I'm I do not like calamari, but their calamari is like shockingly good with nuoc cham and it's just very crisp. The whole fried fish. I'm sure no one ever orders it, but it's really good. Um, they yeah. will now. You can order it. Yeah, yeah. I, I 100% would. That sounds so good. Yeah, yeah. so good. I mean, Bada Bastio, as y'all mm-hmm. have already known, like that yeah. place is, I'm so glad to have them in the neighborhood now. Um, yeah, my gosh. I get out. Yeah, I try to, we try to get out despite mm-hmm. having a two and a four year old. Yeah, and running a crazy, yeah. big, fast growing business. Yeah. That's one of the things that we've noticed, and I don't, we don't want to put words in people's mouths, but it is something that we want to, or we intend to make a bigger point mm-hmm. in season two of this thing. Mm-hmm. Is so our podcast is called "Making It in Asheville," mm-hmm. and there's intentionally a lot of different ways that that statement can be read, heard, and experienced. But one of the things is, you know, I think of um, uh, Frank Sinatra, right? If you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. But we're not trying to make it in new york Mm -hmm. it's a different type of energy you need to bring Mm -hmm. to and imagine la as well never lived there but like to make it and so i think that it's almost the people that we want to talk to it's like they're here it's a choice to be making it in Asheville. yeah and part of that is you can well some people can build a really big and successful business but also prioritize wellness in some ways and what I've heard in this conversation so far is a lot of um, a lot of language that you're using t- tells me or makes me suspect that you've done a lot of self work. What kind of things show up for you in like your self work practice over the last? Because <laughs> like making space for things to be as they are, right? Mm-hmm. Like that is if that's on your own, just with a journal, <laughs> hats off. <laughs> to you for uncovering these like powerful truths but i'm wondering what is self-work and sure yeah i have so many ways to respond to this question i think first um i would say that um i think it's an interesting point like making it in new york versus making it in Asheville. um i would venture to say that making it in Asheville requires a much um bigger entrepreneurial spirit than making it in new york does Mm -hmm. um New York, 
you have a network built in. It's really easy to make connections. There's, um, there's a lot of different um, models to look around. Like you can walk into a bar and like meet six people who are doing something similar. There's the freaking wing. You can like meet women who are like also entrepreneurs and like share secrets. Like that's not, that's not how it, it, like everyone who's so many people that I know in Asheville are, are the first people to be doing something in Asheville or the first people to be doing something in general. Like there's a lot of, because of um, I think the less, um, the less pressure of a big city, there's a lot of innovation that comes out of Asheville, but that grows much more slowly um, because we're using, we don't have the same tools built in. So I, so that's kind of the one that's separate from that first question, but, um, um, but then yeah, self-work. I, before I, uh, I started working full time at East Fork. I did that. Um, I, yeah, I, I was a yoga teacher and learned Sanskrit and all that. I like dabbled in that Asheville world for a little bit, and I'm I'm glad I did because I think it set up a. I now the the yoga I do really just looks like deep meditative breathing at 3 a.m. when I can't sleep and I need to like. Um, I I mean to be honest um wellness is not something that I personally have been able to prioritize while running East Fork um but I do think that um because I'm in an environment that's beautiful and healthy and where a lot of people around me are and I know that those resources are there when I need them um I think that I've like stayed grounded and I I know that I will get there after this really intense period um but as far as my own personal wellness Drink too much wine, drink too much coffee. I take Lexapro, which I really highly recommend if you're dealing with anxiety. Um, yeah, not not I'm not the beacon of wellness, but I eat well. Not like healthy, but I eat the foods that I like that I think are delicious. <laughs> That's, that's a all part of it. Yeah. That's all part of it. And you yeah. eat off of beautiful I eat off beautiful things. plates. Yeah. <laughs> and I prioritize like my I I am surrounded by really, really special people mm-hmm. and I um mm-hmm. really think that like having good, strong friendships, like there's like nothing better than having a community of people who love and trust you and like if you have that then you can go two years without eating kale and like your your soul is still going to be full you know like it lets you take a wellness hiatus like to, when you have like a, yeah. a framework of love yeah. <laughs> that sounds yeah. cheesy but but it's and it's true and it, it mm, yes yeah. I, I heard and thank you i think that um intentionally or otherwise you that felt vulnerable and honest in a way that everything has been honest, mm-hmm. but that particularly felt it. Um, I would, I I would love to ask a little bit about the future. Mm-hmm. Do we have any questions that we had thought? No, that's exactly what. So I, was uh, I would love to ask, knowing that you said, you know, it allows you to eat, you know, go two years without eating kale and still survive. <laughs> so I'm wondering if from this moment forward, like, what are we? So you mentioned thinking about another space because we're already nearing capacity here. What does the future hold mm-hmm. for you, for East Fork? Um, what are you most excited about? Mm, um, so much. We're uh, we have a, this ten-year vision plan that is that it reads really beautifully. I mean, there's like you know a vision for um, for on-site childcare and for this like full. Um, uh, personal financial wellness program at East Fork and, um, you know, bluntly to be the largest, but also most ethical manufacturer of ceramics in the U S. Um, 
to um, be employee owned. Like we have all those big visions for East Fork, um, hopefully going to be B Corps certified by the end of this year. Um, but we're starting to play with some more in the shorter term. We're going to Mexico City in a couple of weeks to go visit a factory down there called Anfora. Um, it's a big factory, like 400 people. Um and a lot of people, they, they want to talk about like East Fork and, and sustainability and all that. And it, we can all do our part to be more sustainable, but it's really like the big companies that are going to prevent global yeah. climate collapse. Um, and so as we grow, we're excited to learn from big companies to start building a framework now for how to grow in the most sustainable way possible. Anything we do now is going to be kind of like a drop in the bucket compared to the global ceramic industry, which is just like putting so much um, crap into the environment. Um, so that's something is like building out an entire new research and development wing 10 years from now that are, that's really going to get us to a point where we can be carbon negative. Um, that's, that's East Fork's future. Um, yeah, definitely looking for a new space. Um, we don't know what that's going to look like yet. Um, whether it's a place right down the road or maybe we move out into the county and this is stays like an event space or something. Um, would love to have a food and beverage component, love to have a restaurant, dying to one day have an East Fork restaurant. Um, I personally would like to be traveling. Like I love the traveling for work part and talking on behalf of East Fork. Um, so I'm going to um, a new food festival in Oregon in October called Rue Festival that um, I'm really excited about and want to be doing more of that. So that means like for me getting out of the weeds more. Um, yeah, definitely not working 80 hours a week is something that I'd like to see in my future. Um, yeah, being the biggest manufacturer of ceramics in the U.S. and having a real economic impact on Western North Carolina um, and being a model for what a profitable, sustainable manufacturing business in the U.S. could look like for other companies is what is on our radar. And taking a vacation one day. <laughs> <laughs> maybe just maybe just to hot springs. <laughs> or to Badabas, too, uh, which, to Badabas is, which too. is a little island <sighs> paradise. In I have the a gift certificate. I need to go use it. We, I mean, we went, our second time was just, I guess, last weekend or the weekend mm -hmm. before. It is, it's one of those things that I'm like, I, if I had unlimited time and resources, I'd be there a lot. Yeah. yeah. Every time we go, we're like, why don't we do this more often? You know, like <laughs> once a week. It just, I want yeah. it to be on my, yeah. It's so standing nice. appointment calendar yeah. invite. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's blocked. I have, yeah, have, a meeting. <laughs> yeah. I have a meeting. You can take meetings in there in the sauna. You can. Yeah. We were actually thinking about that. Like that is, there's something about like getting the tea and that could be so much better than like a meeting for a beer. Yeah. Like let me let's go get some CBD uh, yeah. tea and sit in a hot room, so sweat much it out. Better. I don't know. Yeah. Yet to be done from us, but I think there's a future. I think you should do it. Yeah. Um, Girls uh, parking though. Have you guys made it over there yet? Not for the so not for the spa treatment. Yeah. I know. No, we're so close to them. That's the wedding gift that you guys need to ask for from someone. <laughs> Explicitly. Yeah. We have so we have like two days before we actually fly out of Asheville to New York to New York to Portugal, but um, it's possible Monday mm -hmm. morning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, do you have any more questions, Tony? I mean, yeah, like a million. <laughs> but also, we really, really just want to say thank you, and yeah. we appreciate the time and the intention attention um 
we love what you guys are doing. I think everyone does, but um, this was special. So thank you. Thank you both so much. And welcome to town. It's good to be <laughs> here. Yeah. And I know that sounds really stupid because I'm sure everybody <laughs> can find you, but where can we find you on the internet? <laughs> you can find us at, at East Fork Pottery on Instagram or eastfork.com on the World Wide Web. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. All right. That was episode 20 with Connie Matisse from East Fork. And oh man, oh boy, we loved talking with Connie. Yeah, we feel super uh, blessed, I guess is the right Grateful, word. Grateful, thankful. Yeah, yeah. Um, to be able to have gotten this interview and to have met Connie and uh, to be able to share this with you all. So thank you for listening. Very much. Um, if you enjoyed the episode, we would ask that you please visit iTunes. We have links to it in the show notes and um, most podcast players will have an easy link to it. Um, likes and reviews mean the world. It helps other people find the podcast. Um, and for that, we are very grateful as well. Yep. And if you want to stay up to date on all the latest episodes and happenings at Making It in Asheville, uh, please join our mailing list. We typically send out an email every week to two weeks with all the latest episodes and anything else that's happening on the blog and community. Right. And if you listen to episode 19 uh, with some of our intentions for this season, community is a big deal for us. So uh, exciting stuff to come in Q4 of 2019. Email list is going to be where we share that most often. And last but not least, if you or someone you know would be interested in being on this podcast, we make it very easy to nominate them or yourself on our website, making it in com slash podcast. There will be um, a bunch of ways for you to let us know. So with that, episode 20 is now in the books. You believe it? High five. East Fork, West Spoon, North Knife. North Knife sounds cool. It does sound cool. North Knife. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we got to make it. We got to meet a knife maker. Hey, this is East Fork. Oh, that's funny. I'm North Knife. We need to sell another podcast for your puns. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> ah.